morning. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 that we've entitled a, a prisoner or the prisoner's secret. And we're going to begin by reading verses 8 through 9 of Ephesians chapter 3. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version. Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look into this uh, interesting passage as Paul uh, lays out his heart, his life, his passion, that you would uh, speak to our own hearts. And so we uh, just ask for your spirit's still voice speaking to our hearts. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul was given the wonderful privilege of bringing to light one of God's mysteries. Now remember in the New Testament, a mystery is a secret that was once hidden but is now revealed to God's people. Warren Wearsby calls it a sacred secret that is unknown to unbelievers but is understood and treasured by the people of God. Once again, let's just kind of review where we Where we've been, you have this, I don't, so that's, um, Ephesians 1, 1 to 14 explains our wealth in Christ. Um, as Paul says, blessed be God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, like what? Well, God chose us in him, that we would be holy and blameless before him, that the first six uh, first three verses deal with the Father's plan. It was the Father's plan for you to be chosen in Christ and someday to stand before him holy and blameless. It was the Father's plan that you would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And then you come uh, to the part of the Lord Jesus. He, he was the active agent. It was his purchase. In him we've been redeemed. That means to be purchased out of a situation that, that you are trapped by and you have no ability to free yourself. And it was through his blood. He's made known to us the mystery of God's will. He's made us uh, an inheritance to God the Father. And then part of that wealth is the work of the Spirit, where the Spirit is a witness. He seals us. That is a witness that we are God's possession. It is a witness to us that we are protected and guarded. He is a pledge of, the, of our inheritance, which means that we're going to get everything God's promised. I will someday have uh, a brand new body that will be better at playing pickleball than it is at present. <laughs> okay? These things are ours in Christ. The minute I receive Christ, they're guaranteed. And then he prays. And he prays that you and I would realize these things, that they're true. Because how you think affects how you act. And so he wants you to know those things. And then he comes over to chapter 2. 
And in chapter 2, he, he talks about our new position in Christ first individually. I was dead in my sins and trespasses, but he's made me alive. And not only that, he's raised me up with Christ. And he's seated me in the heavenly places with Christ. And I have a glorious future that in the ages to come, he'll continue to show me the surpassing riches of, of Christ's grace in kindness towards us. And now he's, he's made me his masterpiece, his workmanship, created under good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he has something for me to do, something meaningful for me to do. And the, the second half of the book is going to talk about that. But not only that, he's put me in a body. He broke down the middle wall. He made Jews and Gentiles into one body in Christ as they come to Christ and believe in him. And it's not that he raised the Gentiles up to be equal with the Jews. No, I, I love that, that illustration that John Christom used that if you had a statue of silver, that would be the Jews, and a statue of lead, that would be the Gentiles, and you melted them down, and God puts them in the fire, and out comes a big statue of gold. Both of them have been raised way beyond where they were before. And so he's made us, he's put us in this body of the church that is growing and God is building it and someday it will be a dwelling place for God the Spirit in its final beauty. And so he comes over to chapter 3. And he says, verse 1, For this reason I... These are the words Paul uses before he prays. If you go back to chapter 1... And verse 15, for this reason I too, and then he prays in, in chapter 3, if you go down to verse 14, for this reason I bow, and he prays. Paul is going to pray just like he did on that first section. He's going to pray that, that they grab a hold of these truths and make it part of their lives. Uh, but he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And there's something about those words that triggers a, a parenthesis. So in many of your Bibles, after those words in Ephesians 3.1, there's a, there's a little dash. Because he's broken his train of thought that he'll pick up again in verse 14 when he prays. Because something has caused him in those words, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for, you gent for the sake of you Gentiles, by the Spirit has triggered him giving us this digression. Uh, some, some commentators, using a little uh, spiritual imagination, Paul dictated his letters. He, he had a thorn in the flesh. Most people believe that it was a terrible eye uh, situation. Um, when he talked about writing in his own hand, he says, with such big letters I've written. And so he probably dictated, we know he dictated some of his letters, he's probably dictating this letter, and one commentator says, and as he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, perhaps the guard just took the chain that he had and gave it a little shake to remind him, no, you're not a prisoner, you're a prisoner of Rome. And so Paul's going to talk about being a prisoner um, because uh, it's important that it answers questions like why is Paul 
a prisoner in Rome? Why did God permit such a thing? See, Paul uh, was arrested in Jerusalem. He was two years in custody in Caesarea Philippi. Then there was that adventurous trip uh, to Rome where they were almost sunk. And now he's been almost three years a prisoner in Rome. Five years he's been in prison. And so why is this? And so he talked about Paul the prisoner. In the, in the prison epistles, um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, he mentions this a lot. And he always mentions that uh, he, he makes it clear that he is not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, he says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus, of the Lord. He's an ambassador in chains. In Philemon, two times, he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he talks about, in my imprisonment for the gospel. And this is echoed in Philippians 1.13, my imprisonment in Christ, or in the cause of Christ. So Paul doesn't see himself as being imprisoned by Rome. He sees himself his pri- being imprisoned as part of his ministry for Christ. Paul learned a real important lesson. Put present circumstances in the larger context of God's sovereign plan. Roger Earle, in his book, Word Meanings in the New Testament, shares the story of a very busy, widely traveled preacher. And he became ill and and ended up being bedridden, flat on his back in bed. Tempted to feel sorry for himself and frustrated at his enforced inactivity, he turned for comfort to the 23rd Psalm. And as he read the familiar words, he maketh me to lie down, the spirit suddenly put a period right at that point. The man went no further. Here was the truth he needed. It was not ultimately the sickness that made him lie down, but the Lord, who wanted to talk quietly with his servant who had been too busy to listen attentively. And Paul gets a glimpse of what he's doing through his imprisonment. In Philippians 1.13, he says, the whole praetorian guard had the opportunity to hear the gospel. When they chained those soldiers or put those soldiers on the duty of guarding Paul, they thought he was the prisoner, but he had a prisoner, a, a prison audience. They had to be there for their five-hour, six-hour, or eight-hour shift, and he had plenty of say to them. And so the whole Praetorian Guard was hearing the gospel of Christ. What a door open. And then he, he says, and some of the Christians, seeing that Paul's in prison, Paul's not going to come by and preach the gospel at our local assembly. Paul's not going to be able to do it. And so they became bold in their faith, and they began to share the gospel. Now, some did it to to encourage Paul. Some did it saying, ooh, I could be the next Paul. Did it out of selfish ambition, but Paul says, but God's causing the gospel to be, the preaching of the gospel to be increased by my imprisonment. And how sad would it be, how spiritually poor would we be if we didn't have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon? How many times have you turned to those books to find help? And God put Paul in prison with time to reflect, 
time for the Spirit to speak to him so that he could write us these words. And we need to learn to put present circumstances in the larger context of God's sovereign plan. Because that forces you to look to see God's presence and God's hand. And it helps you uh, to have confidence that no matter what happens, God is there. And to learn the lessons he wants you to learn. Andrew Murray uh, wrote four helps to handling trials. And I've found this to be very helpful through the years. And he summarized, how do I do this? How do I, I'm going through a, a situation. How do I put that situation in the context of God's sovereign plan, that God's still in control, that God is using this for his purposes, and, and what, how I should respond to that? And so he said, A, say God has brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place, and in that fact I will rest. Rome didn't bring me to Rome. God brought me to Rome for his purposes. B, he will keep me here and give me grace to behave as his child. And that's important. That's how God wants us to behave, as his child. And he'll give me the grace. He's brought me to this situation. He'll help me. He'll keep me here, protect me, watch over me. C, Then he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lesson he intends for me to learn. In this situation, God has a purpose, a lesson. And ultimately, it is a blessing. I've shared before, I met a man who who someone told me on the East Coast, he had been a really pretty good children's speaker, camp speaker, and I'd never met him. And and so I I said, well, I'd like to meet this guy. So I hung around after my camp. And when he came, I met him and and we were talking. I said, you know, I don't know every camp speaker, but I've heard of most of them and I've never heard of you. I'm I'm surprised by that. And he said, well, he said, I was a businessman working in the assembly. I seem to have a gift speaking to youth. And so the elder said, we would like to see you go full-time to minister to youth and he said, I thought it over, prayed with my wife. We said, yes, this is what God wants me to do. And so I went out into the Lord's work. I lined up all these youth conferences, all these camps for the summer. And then they found a problem with my back, and I was in a body cast for a year. Had to cancel them all. And he said, there I went, laying in bed, asking God why. God's bringing the scriptures that I had memorized and, and that I had learned he said, when I, when I got out, people began coming to me. Hey, I have a friend in a hospital. Could you go visit him? Turns out there's like 20 hospitals within an hour drive of my home. And he said, today I'm a chaplain in a lot of them. And my main ministry, I still do some camp work, but my main ministry is coming into people who are laying flat on their back in a hospital bed, wondering why, and I had a year to think about it. And he said, God equipped me for my real ministry. He had to move me out into service so then he could direct me to what that service really was. And that's the blessing. And so he ends it by D, in his good time, he can bring me out again, how and when he knows. So let me say I am here, one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, under his training, and four, for his time. And 
And God says, that's what I want you to understand. I'm in control. If I bring things into your life, I have a plan. Step back. Look at the bigger context. Trust me. Let me work in your life and through your life. And so Paul says, my imprisonment was for the gospel and for the sake of the Gentiles. And that was directly related to a responsibility that God had entrusted to him. Let's look at verse 2. Paul the steward. Verse 2. Indeed, you ha- If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul uses a word that can be translated stewardship, a, a responsibility entrusted to someone, or dispensation. A dispensation is the outworking or administration of God's dealings with mankind during a particular period. If you grew up on the Schofield Bible, uh, you're familiar with this. If you've heard of dispensationalism, you're, you're aware of this, that God worked in different ways in different time periods with mankind, always on the basis of the cross, always by faith. But before sin, God dealt with Adam and Eve in innocence. From, from their sin to, to the flood, God dealt with people by their conscience, speaking to their conscience. But the thought and intent of the heart was, of man was only evil continually. After the flood, he made the Mosaic covenant with Moses, and he gave man the right to shed the blood of men who shed men's blood. The, the dispensation of human government that showed its failure at the Tower of Babel where the government decided to disobey God and incorporated everybody into that and God had to scatter them by changing their language. Then he called Abraham, you come to the dispensation of promise where God is working through the Jewish people through the promises to Abraham ultimately to bring a savior into the world. Then out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant with them, the covenant of law. And so you have the dispensation of law. Where people are not saved by bringing the sacrifices. They're saved by the work of Christ, trusting that God is going to provide the Savior and showing their obedience by bringing the sacrifices. And God gives the law. The vow shouts, not, well, if you might kindly consider a few suggestions that I'm making and think them over. No, it's the law. And in Israel, people were put to death by the witness of two if they disobeyed the law. But when Christ came, Moses brought, John says, brought the law. Christ brought grace and truth. We enter the church age, uh, sometimes called the dispensation of grace. And there are some commentators who take this, this reference where Paul says, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Uh, Some of the King James Version, some versions say the dispensation of grace. And they're looking at this time period where God's dealing with grace. Five times already in this letter, we've had the word grace talked about. God's grace. And it is used that that way as a dispensation back in chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, 
That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. After the church is gone, there is coming a time, the, the dispensation of the fullness of time, when God is going to bring to conclusion all of his promises. Christ will sit on the throne of David ruling. There will be a kingdom. And, and so it is used in that way, but I think in context, and commentators disagree back and forth, but in context, I, I think Paul is speaking of the word in the sense of stewardship. Paul's talking about the, he has a responsibility entrusted to him to proclaim this message of salvation by grace through faith. He goes on. He says, uh, you've heard, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship, this, this thing that God has entrusted to me uh, to share the message of God's grace, which is given to me for you, the Gentiles, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Um, again, the mystery is a truth before now uh, unknown, but now revealed. And uh, he he says, uh, I've written to you before. Uh, I'm thinking he, because he's going to pull so much out of it, it, it is verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22 that he's talking about. But he said it was given to him by revelation. In Galatians 1, 11 and 12, he says, For I would, not, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to men, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem and confer with Peter and James, and they said, now here's the gospel. No, Jesus Christ, in a revelation, gave me the message of the gospel that he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You come, a sinner, under the judgment of God, and you find God graciously has provided a salvation. And by faith, you trust his promise and come to Jesus Christ, and he saves you. And Paul says, that revelation was, was given to me. He said, it is the mystery of Christ, verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. That's something not known in other generations. But is now, um, verse 5, which in other generations, the Old Testament, was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And, and the mystery of Christ is this. These Jews and Gentiles are going to be one body. It's the church. Paul wants you to get excited about the church. Okay? This is the mystery of Christ, that he's calling out a body of people to be God's own possession. And, and he says, this wasn't known in the Old Testament. The Jews were the people of God. You are a bunch of uncircumcised people. That's who you are. Alienated from Christ, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You have no hope. You're without God in the world. But now we have an equal place 
with the Jews. And so the apostles were given this message, and he talks about them uh, in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, these men who were given the truths of the New Testament truth, the apostles, the apostles' doctrine, and, and the prophets, before the word of God was there, in local assemblies, men would have the gift of prophecy, and God would give them the truths, the New Testament truths that, that we read about in, in the New Testament, so that the, the church knew this truth of what God was doing these foundational truths about Christ and salvation. And so he says, to verse 6, to be specific that Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We have an equal place with the Jews. We are fellow heirs of all of God's promises. Paul, even most people think, invents a word. We are in the same body. We are fellow members of, of the same body. This word in Greek is only used by Christian authors after this. It's never used before. He says we're in the same body, the same group. And we are partakers of all of God's promises, those things that he mentioned in, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. You and I get that. We had no covenant with God. We had no claim on God. Israel had the covenant with God. But we've been brought in at, as equal co-heirs, equal members of the body. You know, Paul, Paul faced... Um, hostility even in, amongst the Jewish Christians. Remember when Peter preached to Cornelius and he went back to, to Jerusalem in Acts 11, they said, we hear you've been with a bunch of Gentiles. They really thought that for Gentiles to come under God's blessings, they had to come in, be circumcised, and become Jews. And God's message was, no, I'll take them right the way they are and make them equal with you. And that bent a lot of noses out of shape and put Paul in prison. Paul says, it's for the sake of this message that I was, I was a steward of, but I was faithful in my stewardship. And later on, we'll talk about spiritual gifts. God's given you a stewardship. God's given you talents. You have a stewardship. And Paul says, listen, I was faithful to God in my stewardship. And then he talks about Paul the servant, verse 7, of which I was made a minister. This is the word uh, that we get deacon from. It stresses the idea of service. A dekaios was a, a, a table waiter, always at the bidding of his customers. He says, I was a servant. I was a serving servant. Uh, of which I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace. Paul never got over the fact that God had shown him personally grace. A man who persecuted the church in Acts 26.10, he said, I always voted for death when, when what should we do with these Christians? My vote was always death, he said. 
And now he's given the opportunity to serve Christ. And then he says, uh, according to the working of his power. Back in Ephesians 1.19, he said, I want you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And Paul says, I understand that. I want you to understand that because that is what made it possible for me to serve. Which brings up the issue of a couple words. Um, I can't versus I won't. A believer given a responsibility can say to God, I can't, aware of their weakness. God, I, I look at that, I can't. There's sometimes at camp, I look out over 150 kids. Some of those kids, this may be the only opportunity they'll ever hear the gospel, and I'm supposed to give it to them. And you just go to God and you say, too big for me. Rightly used, I can't, can keep you from doing it in the flesh. Because it makes you turn to God and say, I can't, I have to have your help. It puts you on your knees. When God called Moses at the burning bush, every time he brought up an I can't argument, God says, well, I'll take care of that. (laughs) You're going to speak to them? They're going to say, well, who are you? Well, here's my name. Well, what if they don't believe I've really spoken to you? Hey, I'll tell you what. Put your hand in your cloak and pull it out. It'll be completely covered with leprosy. If that doesn't work, throw your staff down. It'll become a snake. And then he says, all good, supportive things, God, but you know what? Have someone else do it. I won't do it. And God got mad. God doesn't mind when we come to him and we, we're viewing our own weakness and we say, God, I, I don't think I can do that. God will come alongside. But people who say to God, I won't, that's a different issue. The right answer is I can't, but with your help, I will. And, and that's what Paul understood. Because there are places where, and we'll read some of the verses later, where Paul talks about being weak and fearful and filled with trembling. How could he do it? Because he understood the working of God's might. He goes on, verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Again, a, a reference to his persecution of the church. But, you know, often we think of Paul as fearless, but 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5, um, he's, he says, um, for when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, Conflicts without fears within. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. And if you think you have it bad when you are looking at something to do, think of Paul's words. We despaired of life. And I love the one in 2 Corinthians 12.11. Paul says, I was a nobody that God made somebody who he could use. 
Paul says, don't think that I pulled this off because of, he's Paul. No. He's a man that God, that knew enough to turn to God for strength and help. See, Paul's just unburdening himself here. And he's saying these, these are the important things that made it possible to be a steward, to be a servant. And then his third one is to be a preacher. And notice what his goals are. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. This word unfathomable, used only here and in Romans eleven thirty three, means unsearchable. Literally, not capable of being traced. When they translated Job into the, the Greek translation, uh, to the, it's a favorite word of Job's to describe God's actions. So vast you can't discover their end. The unfathomable riches of Christ. You can't begin to get a hold of it. The unsearchable, some versions say, riches of Christ. Ephesians 2.7, so that in the ages to come he might sh show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. You know, as I go through eternity, just all the time, there's going to be a new revelation of the grace of Christ that's going to so, so overwhelm me that my heart will burst with gratitude. We're never going to get to the bottom of it. It's the unfathomable riches of Christ. We've made the point a number of times in this study of Ephesians, but I want to highlight it again. The focus and center of everything is Jesus Christ. Your personal relationship with him that releases into your life all the spiritual blessings of God and all the vast riches of Christ's work. It's not your study. Now when we looked at, at Paul's prayer for our comprehension, we pointed out clearly God doesn't put a premium on ignorance. And Go to Psalm 119, and, and they'll just give you benefit after benefit after benefit of knowing this word. But study isn't the number one thing God wants. Service isn't the number one thing God wants. We all talk about, I want to be there and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But in the Old Testament... The greatest accolade God gave to anyone is that that person reminded him of his son. And see, I can get a handle on, on study. And then I can feel real good about myself and look down on others. I can get a real handle on service. So I don't ask you, did you study this week? I hope you all did. I hope you all were in the word this week. I don't ask you, did you all serve this week? But I ask you, did you walk with Jesus Christ this week? Was Jesus Christ really part of your life this week? Where you're in his word to hear his voice, to be obedient to him. 
or you're serving him because you love him and you want to see his kingdom increased. But it's not an end in itself, not service as an end in itself, not study as an end in itself. Those are, those are things because the, the focus, the center of everything is Christ. And Paul got that because in Philippians, writing again in the same time period, he said, here's the key to life, that I may know him in a greater way. Power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. His second goal is, verse 9, to bring to light what is the dispensation, the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden God who created all things. To make plain to everyone this dispensation of grace that chapters 1 and 2 talked about. This mystery hidden in past ages. The church by the God who created all things. His plan from the foundation of the world. And then he talks, oh man, two slides ago. Um, Through the church. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This word made known is only found here. uh, The word manifold is found in in 1 Peter. It talks about the manifold grace of God. But this has another uh, adjective attached to it. It's... uh, the word manifold in, in Peter means multicolored, and so this one would be multi-multicolored. It would be the difference between coloring with a, a box of eight crayons and a box of 124, okay? And he says this manifold wisdom of God. Uh, I put iridescent because some commentators like the word iridescent because it has the idea of infinitely diversified, sparkling, many-splendored. All of God's omniscient wisdom is being put on display. Who's it being put on display to? To the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, the angels. The angels. God is displaying his wisdom to the angels. And who's he using? You. You. And me, the church. First Peter 1.12 says, angels long to look into our salvation. Why did he save that rascal George Farber? What was he thinking? And as God works, they, oh, didn't see that coming. Someday when they see me in his presence, blameless and holy, a son of God, in full glory, I said, whew, never saw that coming. God's so wise. In 1 Corinthians 11.10, it says he observes the head covering particularly, but, but he's observing order in the church. He's observing how the church is lining up with the principles God's laid down for authority structures in the church. Angels are watching. Because they've seen a whole world in rebellion. And now here's a group of people God's called out. And they watch to see these rebellious sinners become obedient, submissive saints. And then in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, the apostles and their service were observed by the angels. 
One has said the church does not exist for itself. It exists for God, for his glory. The church is God's masterpiece in which his excellencies are mirrored forth as an object of interest and scrutiny to angels. The more the church lives in harmony with its high calling, the more the angels will be able to see in it the constantly unfolding beauties of God's wisdom. Because God does things in unusual ways. How did he bring life to you through death of his son? How's he going to bring you to glory? His son endured shame on the cross. How's he going to show his strength through your weakness? God, God just does things in strange ways, but he does things in an incredible way. And angels are watching you to see this. This whole plan, he says, verse 11, this was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, this whole plan of saving people by grace through faith and bringing all believers into one body and displaying the glory of his wisdom through us was in accordance with God's eternal plan. All the way back in verses three through six of, of chapter one. I'm gonna do this and it's gonna knock the socks off those angels. And then... There's the confidence. He says, in whom we have boldness. That means freedom of speech. It literally means t telling all. When you're really close to someone, you trust them, you have a freedom to say what you really want to say. In Christ, we have the liberty of openness of speech to God, to come boldly to the throne of grace. Grace, And then he says, and confident access through faith in him. Because we're accepted in Christ, we can enter God's presence at any time under any circumstances. We need no intermediaries. We have Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. I can come into the presence of God as a son of God. Any time, on any reason, and I can speak boldly. I, I, can, I have freedom to pour out my heart. God, I don't understand this. Why are you taking me through this? Help me understand it. Give me grace to behave as your child. I don't like this. I have freedom to speak with God. And then in his circumstances, verse 13, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory is I don't want you to lose heart because of my difficulties. It seems that they were grieving over his imprisonment and suffering that was caused by it. Paul wanted them to see his suffering was a divinely appointed part of his ministry. He was suffering for their benefit, facing the opposition of Jews because he was being faithful to God's stewardship. He was being obedient to God's will. And his suffering was for their glory the price Paul was willing to play for their salvation. I'm going to end with the story. Sorry, it's over a little bit. In the um, journals of John Wesley. John Wesley used to go preach. He preached 14, 15 times a day. He would be on horseback. He would go to the mines, and as they were letting out, he would preach. And he, he would go wherever there was a group of people, and he would preach. And a lot of the time, he was met by being thrown, having rotten fruit thrown at him, rocks, dirt. 
and that kind of stuff. Well, one day he was out, he's preaching, and as he was riding from one place to another place, it began to dawn on him nothing had been thrown at him. No cat calls, nobody had been shouting garbage at him, throwing garbage at him. All of a sudden, his heart was overwhelmed that maybe he was doing something wrong. Maybe he had softened his gospel (laughs) to appease these people. And he hopped off his horse, and he got down on his knees, and he said, God, if I've done anything like that, I I just, I repent. I, I want to be used by you. And about that time, he got hit in the back by a stone, and he heard some guy saying, you dumb preacher. And he says, I I stood up and my heart was filled with joy because <laughs> I knew that I was, I was still doing the right thing. And Paul says, listen, your heart ought to be filled with joy as you see my suffering because you know it's because I'm doing the right thing and it's for your glory. So go out there and do the right thing as a steward as a servant of Jesus Christ. Father, we just, we thank you for Paul. And, and Paul would, if Paul was here, Paul would be the first one to say, don't point at me, point at Christ. Christ was the one who made it possible. Lord, help us not to fall short with, uh, at study or at service and miss the unfathomable riches that's in your son. But may those things push us on to knowing him better, serving him better, loving him more. And so, Lord, as we go out into a dark world that doesn't have this secret of who your son is, we pray that you would use us to bring it to light in lives. Because we ask it in Jesus' name.